1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. I hope y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you. In the event that you just got here and you heard or you didn't get to hear, Miss Emma, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're looking at verses 3 through 11. Now, as you open or load your Bible, I've got a couple of quick updates for you. Number one, if you are new, we'd love to hang out with you and have the opportunity to, to meet you. So hunt me after service, or you can fill out one of the Connect cards that's on the chairs. In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, let us hook you up. We want to give you a Bible. We love God's Word. We love to preach from God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's Word. And finally, if you are new, we just started a new series in the book of 1 Timothy. This is located in the New Testament, and uh, this is week two. Um, there are going to be some things on here that uh, are, are context-based, so I would encourage you to listen to last week's sermon so that you have a bigger picture as to exactly what's going on between Paul and Timothy and why he's writing to him in this city called Ephesus. But other than that, I'd love to dive into our time this morning. Here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to open with and tell me what you think. Well, don't tell me what you think. Here it is. Uh, whatever you value, you protect. Whatever you value, you protect. If you value your sleek iPhone, you protect it by buying a case for it. Right? There was at one point, like all those otter boxes came out and you saw those videos, they'd be throwing them off of bridges to show you like, it works and the iPhone is still intact, right? You buy a case to protect it. If you value your privacy, then you value or you protect your privacy by setting up boundaries. Online, this would look like purchasing certain software programs, maybe some encryption, uh, your passwords. In person, this could be who you limit yourself to hang out with and what you share and what you don't share. If you value your health, you protect it by carefully considering what you eat and don't eat. If you value sleep as an example, then you protect it by going to bed early or for some sleeping in. That's another sermon. 
If you value your family, you protect them, not only physically from danger, but you protect them by shaping the culture and care of your home. The point is that whatever it is you and I value, we go to great lengths to protect. And to a measure, that's what Paul is telling Timothy in this section of Scripture. Paul needs Timothy to protect the gospel, that is the saving work of Jesus for sinners. He needs Timothy to protect the gospel because it is of great value. But the kind of protection that Paul has in mind is different than the way you and I would protect what we say we value. See, when you and I value something and then we go on to protect it or we go on to guard it, we add things to what we value. We add extra measures. We add extra security. We add extra qualifications. We add extra provisions. And that's good. I'm not knocking that. But that's not how it works with the gospel. The way we guard the gospel isn't through extra measures, extra provisions, extra security, or qualifications. We guard the gospel by letting it stand on its own. The thing that you and I make an assurance of is that it is central to our hearts and to our lives. We guard the gospel by lovingly, unapologetically, and emphatically loosening it to proclaim its beauty. That God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ. He walked in our stead. He died in our place, took ownership, I should say, took responsibility for our mess, was buried. And on the third day, he rose again through the power of the Holy Spirit, conquering sin, Satan, death, and hell, so that we might have new life in him, so that we might be renewed, so that we might be reconciled to God. This is the gospel upon which we have received, the one upon which we have been saved, the one of which we are being saved through. This gospel does not require you to add anything to it. It does not require you to add qualifications. Therefore, we guard it by letting it be what it is and making sure that the centrality of the gospel, that is Jesus The centrality of the gospel is rooted in our hearts and our lives. In short, we could say it this way, and you could even consider this your main idea. Guarding the gospel means keeping Jesus central. Don't miss it. Guarding the gospel means keeping Jesus central. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into our time this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, a day filled with grace and mercy, filled with provision. So we thank you for the rain, uh, much needed. Um, God, we thank you for the opportunity and the gift to gather and to sit under your preached word or to listen to your word, uh, to sing uh, your word. Uh, God, I pray that as we examine uh, your word this morning, that Holy Spirit, you would be at work in us that you would do everything from convict us, convicting us to comforting us, that you would compel us to change in repentance. Um, God, we pray that this time would uh, be a time that glorifies you and that we would be 
uh, edified and sanctified, certainly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. We're looking at verses 3 through 11 this morning. And so we're going to look at two sections in this part of Scripture. We're going to look at the charge and the truth. The charge and the truth. Beginning with the charge, this is verses 3 through 7. Okay? Paul begins in verse 3 by saying, As I urged you. Right? This implies that Paul has already given Timothy his task once before. It's not just that Paul is repeating himself here, but he is emphasizing the importance of his task, of Timothy's task, in the city of Ephesus as he pastors this church. Paul's tone, and you're going to notice this as we walk through this section, Paul's tone is one of strong encouragement. Remember, Timothy, we looked at this last week, Timothy is the timid one. He's in Ephesus, he's a pastor at a church in Ephesus, and he's already catching a lot of heat from people. And so Paul's tone is not just one of strong encouragement, but it is one of urgency as, as he reminds Timothy why he sent him to Ephesus in the first place. Look at verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. And so now he tells us why he, he sent him to Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. The word charge suggests military language, right? It suggests military language, meaning that, that what Paul needed Timothy to do is to confront and correct people. What's interesting is I love the phrase certain persons, right? It's almost as if Paul is writing to Timothy like, you know who I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to be nice. I don't want people to see it on my Facebook page, right? You know who I'm talking about. And so when Paul tells Timothy that, he's telling him, I need you to stay in Ephesus because you're going to confront and you're going to correct certain people. And he tells us why, right? So he says, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, right? Now, it's important that we pause here for a minute. Because it's important to define what doctrine is, right? At least what sound doctrine is. And so we would define doctrine as this, a body of teaching centered around or centered on what God has revealed about himself and mankind. The Bible is God's word. This is a lot of doctrine. It is what God has revealed about himself and mankind. Right? In short, we're talking about God's Word. And so what's happening in Ephesus? Well, there are people who are teaching different doctrine, anything that is opposed to what God has revealed about Himself and mankind. Tracking? Right? So they're teaching different doctrine, and they're devoting themselves to this different doctrine. Now, it's at this point that sometimes in churches, like, man, we don't really like talking about doctrine, and we want to be sensitive about the kind of doctrine we talk about, but we need to understand that doctrine matters. Doctrine matters because it informs how we live. It informs how we engage one another, and certainly it informs our relationship with God based on what he has revealed about himself and man. Doctrine helps us from walking or leading others astray. In a smaller letter, uh, Jude writes that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
doctrine matters. Now, you'll see in a moment that we don't exactly know the kind of doctrine that was being taught in Ephesus. We know that it has something to do with Jewish writings. We know that it has something to do with the law, that is the, the first five books of the Old Testament. So we know that much. And so they're, they're messing around with something centered around that, but we don't know exactly what. And so I thought it would be a good idea. I thought it would be a good idea to consider what kinds of different doctrines exist primarily in our context, our beloved valley, right? Because there are, one of the things you'll notice is that when it comes to different doctrines, many of which have a lot of Jesus and Bible language in them, and that does not make them sound or true, right? And so let's consider a few, and I'll be totally honest, we can list more, right? Because you might be saying, oh, what about talk about our community group, right? So here we go. One of them is relativism. We've talked a little bit about this. Now, one last thing. This is doctrine that is existing in our churches. I'm not just talking about culture outside of the church. I'm talking about things that are in the church. And so one of them is relativism. We talked a little bit about this last week. And if you're unfamiliar, relativism is the belief that there is no universal truth, right? Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth right? Relativism would teach that all truth is specific to its culture and its time, which is ironic, right? Because that's a truth claim, making it contradicting. There you go, right? The second one, right? Uh, and again, this is in no particular order. The second one might be the prosperity gospel. That is something that is very uh, alive and well in our valley. And the prosperity gospel teaches that in short, right, God will love you, God will bless you if you pray more and if you give more. And if you're not blessed, if, uh, if you're not blessed financially, if you're not blessed healthily, it's because you didn't pray enough, it's because you didn't give enough, because you didn't believe enough. So really, you're at fault. And people willingly give themselves, devote themselves to doctrines such as these. <clears throat> Another one, and this is very, very broad, and again, we'll get more, spe more specific as we move forward. Another one is, is spirituality. Now, spirituality can be very, very broad once again, right? But one of the ways in which we've seen spirituality or general spirituality uh, exist in the church is when individuals may claim that revelation comes from within, that what is true and what I think about God comes from within me. And spirituality is very popular because it's very self-centered. Right? Go to the beach because we don't have mountains. Go to the beach, walk the shore, sit on one of the dunes, and realize that truth really comes from within. Okay? This isn't a Marvel comic. That's dumb. Okay? Revelation comes from, not from within, but comes to us from God. All right? Another one is Roman Catholicism. Many of you come from a Roman Catholic background. Now, there's a lot we could say about the Roman Catholic faith, and there's a lot that we can speak of concerning our Roman Catholic friends, right? But in short, there is a body of teaching that exists within the Roman Catholic faith uh, that is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. Some of it is non-existent in the pages of Scripture, right? It's non-existent with what God has, what? Revealed about himself 
and man. Examples like these include the veneration of the saints, Mariology. Anybody's ever heard some of these, right? That Mary is equivalent in authority and supremacy to the Lord Jesus. No, she's not. <clears throat> grace infused. Maybe some of you have heard that, right? That you could receive grace through the Eucharist. Right? It's almost like the Eucharist is a transportation device of grace. <clears throat> Salvation by faith and works. Right? I've come to know Jesus through faith because of what I've done. Right? Many of these doctrines we would refuse, uh, if not all of the ones that I just mentioned. Uh, so you have that. But again, we could talk more and more. We can talk about liberation theology, brujeria, Jesus only. Like all of these different doctrines exist in our context. And the reason I bring them up is because oftentimes when we look at something like 1 Timothy in that first, uh, those first few verses where Paul says, hey, there's different doctrine happening. Yeah, some of it is based on the context, but that doesn't mean we're immune to poor teaching or to bad doctrine. And so back to the text. So what is Paul asking Timothy to do? Or what is Paul telling Timothy to do? Paul is telling Timothy, there are teachers who are teaching different doctrine. I need you to go confront them, and I need you to go correct them. And if you remember, uh, last week we looked at, and it's not going to be up on the screen, last week we looked at Acts 20, and this is where Paul is leaving Ephesus, because he was there for a period, and he's leaving Ephesus, and he communicates to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, he says, hey, I'm leaving, I've given you all that I could, I've prayed for you, I've, I've developed you as pastors and leaders, you guys are good, you need to watch yourself, watch your life, watch your doctrine, because wolves will come from among the church, wolves will come from, specifically, he quotes, you. They will come from among you. And we noticed, or we noted last week, that wolves go and attack individuals. And so here we have a group of individuals who are teaching different doctrine, devoting themselves to it. And the danger here is that the church, the rest of the church, is going to be influenced by this different doctrine. And so you gotta, you got to think about Timothy for a little bit, right? Because he's already under a lot of heat. It's not like this is something he's excited to do, right? Some of you, when it comes to confrontation, and you got to go talk to someone, you're like, oh, I don't, maybe, you know, I'm just going to post about it on Facebook, and maybe they'll get the message, right? Like, that's, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little scary, right? But the, the, what's at stake here is the gospel. The, the, the word of God and the people of God are under tension, and so what Paul, or what God through Paul, wants us to know is that we are to confront those, especially one another, with the truth of God's Word. In this first two verses, you see that Paul is telling Timothy, hey, don't tolerate a different doctrine. And when you go confront them, don't soften it. You're, you're going to tell them the truth by correcting them, right? Paul doesn't give Timothy the option, and subsequently us, we don't get the option to, hey, let's just let's see if it works out. Let's see what happens, kind of like the way we do in churches today, right? Like, you know something's up, but you won't say anything about it, and so you're just like, it'll probably work out, right? T Paul doesn't give Timothy that option. And what it tells us is that confrontation is biblical. Confrontation is biblical. And in a moment, we're going to look at the purpose of confrontation, but almost immediately, if I say that, or when I said that, hey, confrontation is biblical, some of you may have some mental flags raising up, right, with a list of reasons as to why we shouldn't be confrontational, because we should be about love. And at the same time, uh, you might even consider, like, well, we need to talk about how we're going to be confrontational. I can't just tell someone what's up. Like, yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute, right? Like, right? Like, don't confuse or dilute the reality of confrontation with method or strategy. All right, you know what I'm saying? All right, we're not talking about method right now. 
So, no te hagas. With that being said, confrontation is difficult. It's difficult because it's awkward. It's difficult because um, it can get heated. But what's the purpose of actually confronting one another with truth? Paul tells us in verse 5. And, and many scholars would say verse 5 is the summary of all of 1 Timothy. So here's what he says. <clears throat> Charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths uh, and endless genealogies. We'll, we'll tackle all that in a minute. Verse 5, the aim of our charge, the purpose of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So when Paul says that, man, the aim of our charge, the purpose of our charge, the reason we're going to go confront our brother or a sister is one, because we're pursuing love for them. Which means our hearts need to be in the right place. In other words, we don't have self-interest. Our interest is to see them turn to Jesus. Our interest would be to see them repent. Our, 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 our goal would be to see them receptive of what we're going to talk to them about. But this only begins with our hearts being washed by the Spirit. He says a good conscience, right? That means that when we go to someone, as we pursue one another in love, having a good conscience means that we're not approaching them with animosity. We're not approaching them arrogantly. We're not approaching them to bully them. He says love that comes from a sincere faith that is unhypocritical, not perfection, but unhypocritical in that, in that, that the desire is that you love that person more than you love yourself. That you die to yourself and your needs because you love them more than you love yourself. Paul wants Timothy, and in turn, the Spirit is telling us to pursue love as we confront one another, to pursue love not by focusing on a list of behavior modifications, but on a transformation of the heart, an awakening of the conscience, and a strengthened faith. That is why we confront one another. That is why we approach one another with the truth. That is why we love one another. See, when we love one another and when we confront one another in that love, there is a desire to see the other repent. There is a desire to see the other individual walk in grace. When you look at the context of 1 Timothy, Paul hasn't told him at this point. Later on, as we walk through 1 Timothy, he's going to, Paul that is, is going to call out specific people and essentially saying, hey, I kicked them out of the church. That's not where Timothy is at yet. Right now, he's telling them, you need to go correct them. You need to go confront them. And the reason you're going to do that is because you love them first. Is there a time where, where people who teach different doctrine or where there is even like, like the desire to embrace heretical doctrine where we got to address it? Yeah, there is. When sometimes people have left, yes, we have had that in our church. But that isn't the desire, conversation one. It is to see them repent. 
It is to see them walk in grace. And to learn, to grow, fold them back in. So that's where Paul is at with Timothy. And you got to notice that, right? Like he's telling him, you're going to go confront. Now let's talk about the church. Not just our church, but let's just talk about the church. Oftentimes, when it comes to confrontation, Christians oftentimes tend to find themselves in a couple of, one of three positions. There might be more, but I'm just going to look at three. Like, like, let's just be honest, right? Like sometimes we turn into cowards. You got to go confront someone, but because it's hard and it's going to be awkward, you're just going to like keep it internal and you're just going to run away. Some Christians don't do anything. It'll sort itself out. So then we become complacent. And what ends up happening when we become complacent, we turn into consumers and it's not my problem, it's your problem, whatever. And nothing happens. And so rather than making disciples of Jesus, we just make cowards and complacent Christians. The third one is, and some of you might fall into this one as well, the third one is that when it comes to confrontation, you do it with arrogance. You're that individual who's like, oh man, I really love these hard conversations. I'm going to give them the one-two. No, you're, you're a jerk. You're, you're that prideful individual. Like this, you're not approaching a brother or a sister that way just because you want to get your jollies off and rebuke them because of how good your doctrine is. See, the pursuit of loving one another and focusing on the heart means that we are pursuing one another in humility. And humility loves truth. Confrontation isn't meant to be pleasant or easy. Jesus is the one who is pleasant. That's why we're doing it. Confrontation isn't always about right and wrong. Confrontation is about what is true. Sometimes it's not even about winning. It's about repenting. Confrontation is a commitment to speak the truth and love to one another. Listen to these two examples from Paul to other churches. So in 2 Corinthians 7, he's writing to, to the Corinthian church, and here's what he says. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that letter grieved you. So he's telling me, hey, I wrote to you. I called you out. I had to give you some hard stuff. And that made me feel bad because I grieved you. I, I saw that it hurt you. And I kind of regretted telling you that, but I kind of don't either. And he continues. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So it's not that confrontation super easy and you're like, sweet. No, there's, sometimes there's going to be grief involved when you confront one another. But the goal is to see repentance and walking in grace and humility. The goal is to see one another turn and trust in Jesus. And so you see Paul here saying like, hey, I'm, I'm actually grieved. I don't like that I grieved you. It wasn't because I love grieving you, but man, I know it grieved you and I rejoice in your grief because it led you to repent. And so you see this a little bit more of an emotional exchange here from Paul. But then we consider what he writes to the Galatians in Galatians 3. He opens up by saying, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's very strong language to, to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's saying, who has taught you a different doctrine and why did you buy into it? 
in this same chapter, as he pushes them, uses harsh language. He's angry because the gospel is at stake and the, and the Galatians aren't guarding it as they ought to. Instead, they're being lured by another gospel. And so sometimes it's going to be heated. Sometimes there's going to be grief, but we desire to see one another repent and walk in truth and love. And so why does this matter for Timothy? Paul's telling him this. You're going to go confront. You're going to go correct. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because these teachers weren't just teaching different doctrine. They were devoting themselves to this different doctrine, meaning that they were giving themselves to it. Let's back up a little bit. Verse 4, Nor were to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Elsewhere, or in verse 6, he continues, certain persons, by swerving from these, so swerving from a good conscience, serving from a pure heart, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding it either, what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so what Paul is saying is they're devoting themselves to myths, fables, lies, illusions. They're devoting themselves to endless genealogies. In other words, he's saying, man, they're having all these different conversations centered around what-if questions, and they're just puffed up with so much hot air. They're like clouds with no rain. They just look like they're having philosophical and intelligent conversations, but they're never actually landing anywhere. It's not even philosophical. It's dumb. That's what Paul is saying. Like, they're not landing anywhere. It's useless. And so as a result, rather than finding themselves in God's revelation, they substitute stewardship by flirting with and embracing speculation. Why would anyone flirt with speculation? Because it benefits them. Because they want to customize faith to their own way. When it comes to stewardship in verse 4, what that means is that God has ordered things to be a certain way. And by His grace, He has entrusted us with the stewardship of the gospel. So rather than stewardship, they're speculating trying to make it fit their needs. So once more, we don't protect the gospel by hiding it. We do so by allowing it to be and do what it's meant to do through proclamation and practice. And so as they speculate, as they have these conversations about endless genealogies and endless myths, what, what ends up happening? They're swerving away from the truth and they're entering into vain discussions. What do you mean vain discussions? In other words, how is this faith going to benefit me? How can I shape it to be what I want it to be? See, they're looking to be teachers of the law. Remember, we're looking at the, the, the Old Testament, those first five books. They're looking to be teachers of the law, so they're using a lot of Bible language. They're using even the names of the books. And Paul is saying they actually don't know what they're talking about. They're clouds without rain. They're puffed up with hot air. And as they keep doing that, just because they've seen a couple of YouTube videos, read that one article, saw that one post on social media, they think that they're professional at this. They think they actually understand what they're talking about. And not only do they not know what they're talking about, they're arrogant and ignorant. And those are terribly dangerous combinations. 
Paul says that they're making confident assertions. So they're being arrogant about what they don't know, and they're ignorant because they actually don't know the purpose or use of the law. Rather than trying to teach, rather than turning, um, rather than turning to, to matters of the heart or the conscience or faith, they turn away from it. They don't get it. They don't get the law. Why does this matter for you and I? So now we know why Paul is telling Timothy, hey, I need you to confront them. I need you to correct them. Well, why does it matter for you and I? It matters because what you believe about people is shaped by what you first believe about God. What you believe about people is first shaped by what you believe about God. Our doctrine and our life the way we live, are never separate. Your doctrine, what you believe, informs and shapes how you live. And you do not have to be a Christian for, to be affected by that. What you believe shapes how you live. And Paul is telling Timothy and us, hey, you're going to confront and you're going to correct. And you're going to do so by pursuing the truth and focusing on love. Because truth without love is harsh. And love without truth tolerates sin. The irony, the irony is that neither, neither is true love and neither is true doctrine. We need both. We need both. The charge Paul gives Timothy is the same charge we've been given through God's Word. We guard the gospel by unleashing it. We confront one another with love and truth because both reside in grace for us. And the more you and I understand grace, the more it will impact our love and compassion for one another. What you believe about people is first shaped by what you believe about God. And so I'll conclude this section with the charge that Paul gives Timothy. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now let's look at the truth. So if we've looked at the charge. Now we're going to look at the truth. This is verse 8 through 11. And so Paul opens up with a, with a statement of clarity. He opens up in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good. So Paul opens with this statement of clarity. In other words, he's not knocking the law. He's knocking on the way in which these persons are using it and teaching it. And so Paul goes on to say in this first verse, Now we know that the law is good. This is verse 8. If one uses it, lawfully. So he says, if we approach the law correctly, we know that it is good because the law teaches us about what God loves and what he values. So he's saying, I mean, the law is good. It is necessary. Why is it necessary? Because it's going to teach us about what God loves and what he values. And so as we consider the law, you and I need to understand that the law serves multiple purposes. We're going to consider two of those purposes. The first one is that the law reveals our sin. That's one of the purposes of the law. The law reveals our sin. Let's look at verse 9. Paul says, Understanding this, that the law is good, that the law is not laid down for the just, 
but for the lawless, for the disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, unholy and profane. Just to be clear, in case you were curious, that's all of us. That's all of us. Every single one of us falls into this category or these categories. And so it's at this time that Paul now moves and specifically condemns other sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So as he walks through this list, he's pulling from the Old Testament. He's pulling from Exodus 20. He pulls from Leviticus 18. And so here we go. Paul writes, this is for who the law is for, the unholy, the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers. So he's talking to sons and daughters who who not only uh, strike their parents, not just physically, but even murder them, but who dishonor them or who disrespect them, right? He continues, fathers and mothers, for murderers, those people who take lives unjustly and willingly and, and violently, Verse 10, the sexually immoral. All right, so this phrase, sexually immoral, okay? Uh, you're going to turn into nerds for a minute, right? The, the Greek word, because some of you are like, I don't, I'm never going to study Greek. Well, you are today, okay? So the Greek word for sexually immoral is this word called porneia, and it is where we get the word uh, pornography from. And so what Paul is saying here is this is a junk drawer term, Right? Where we're going to just put everything that is contrary to God's way of, of looking at, 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 at how we. Um, let me back up because I'm like getting excited. Okay. It's a junk drawer term for anything that's sexually immoral. Sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, right? Sex in addition to marriage, fornication, pornography, bestiality, right? All of these things, all of these activities fall under this category that is called porneia. Okay? So it's a junk drawer term for all that is sexually immoral. And he continues, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, the key word there is practice. He's not talking about individuals who are tempted by or struggling with or they're even held accountable. These are individuals. This implies, the word practice implies habitual willingness. They are living it out. And if you're curious as to where we stand, like the idea here is so that we would understand what God values, particularly in the context of marriage, and that is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman in a covenant marriage. But he doesn't end there. He continues, enslavers. Yeah, he's condemning people who put other people into slavery. Historically, the American, slave, uh, American slavery, sex slavery, work slavery, like he's throwing it all in there. He goes on, liars, those are people who do not tell the truth, perjurers, those who withhold the truth. And then he concludes by saying, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. There's that word again, doctrine. It is what God has revealed about himself and mankind. Anything that is contrary to that. When we read the law, we learn about what God values and what He condemns. But more so, our hearts. And most of the time when you see the word heart in in the Bible, 
It is referring to the, to the centrality of a person, their whole self, their entire being. It's not referring to emotion. It is referring to the centrality of a person where we make decisions. When we read the law, not only do we learn about what God values or even what He condemns, but when we read the law, we are confronted. Our hearts are confronted. If you walked through that list or even go back and read uh, the first five books and you find yourself uncomfortable, that is the point of the law. It is because it is confronting your heart. It is confronting something you don't like. So let me ask you, at this point, as we even got a, a glimpse of the law, do you at this point resent God's word and reject it because it's confronting you? The law reveals our heart. It reveals our sin. So again, if you're like, man, that makes me uncomfortable. It's doing what it's supposed to. And your beef isn't with me. The second thing the law does is that it reveals our need. Like, that's very gracious if you think about it. In other words, you're not just left there to wallow there in right, wrong, what you don't like, what you do like. You're not just left there. Instead, by grace, the law reveals our need for a Savior. See, the law can't change you, but it does bring about conviction. It does bring about confrontation. It brings about restraint so that we would turn from our sin, so that we would turn from selfish passions, and so that we would turn to Jesus who brings a new heart and a new life. See, these individuals who are manipulating the teaching of the law, again, they're just speculating. And Paul would say, hey, they're not speculating, they're just selfish. They just don't like something. Paul says it this way to the Romans, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Well, what could the law not do? It can't save us. But it does reveal our hearts. It does confront us. And so how did, how did well, what was the solution to that? Paul continues, that God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. The law, by God's grace, reveals our need for Jesus. And that's what the entire message of the gospel is centered upon. The centrality of Jesus. That's what it's about. Jesus. It's not simply conviction of what is right or wrong, but what and who is true. You see, sometimes we look at morality and we try to, like, we try to look at truth through the lens of our morality as opposed to the other way around. Looking at truth and that will determine how we live. So where does behavior, where does behavior come from, as Paul adds, where does behavior come from that is not contrary to sound doctrine? It comes from the gospel. That's where it comes from. Paul isn't giving this list of behavior modifications. 
Paul is addressing the heart of sinners, and he wants Timothy to do the same. See, the heart of Paul's stewardship of the gospel is that sound doctrine comes from a faith centered on the truth that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross on behalf of sinners and their sin. That he was buried and raised from the dead on the third day in order to give sinners like you and me new life and eternal life. It is the gospel that brings life, health, and vitality. The law does not produce a life of love. The gospel does, though. The law, as Paul was showing us, the law of God confronts the depths of our heart by grace reveals our sin by opening our eyes by grace and points us to the one who is faithful to forgive and transform by grace. And so as we close, church, protect the gospel, but not like the way we protect our phones or other daily gifts. Protect it by allowing it to stand on its own. Confronting brothers and sisters who have been lured by by counterfeit gospels takes gospel grit. It takes dying to yourself. Gospel grit is first rooted in a love for others because of what we know about God through His Word. Do you know what happened to the church in Ephesus? In Acts 20, we see that Paul is leaving, and he's telling the pastors and the leaders, watch your life, watch your doctrine, watch how you live. Wolves will come out from among you. And then a couple years later, he sends Timothy to Ephesus, and the charge is to correct and to confront certain persons, to pursue them with love, because they've forgotten that, right? Similar in 2 Timothy. But then if you fast forward to Revelation 2, and in Revelation 2, God through John speaks to seven churches, and the church in Ephesus is one of those churches again. And he commends them. Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, hey, I know you've done a lot of work. I know you've called out sin." People who are false teachers, you got them out. I've seen you suffer and endure for my name's sake. And he says, but I have this against you, that you have forgotten your first love. So to the church of Ephesus, they did a lot of work, but they forgot their first love, and that is Jesus. They didn't protect the gospel for what it was. So let us not forget Jesus, for it is in Him and through Him that we have been brought from death to life, where we have been entrusted as stewards with the gospel, where we have been empowered to love one another, even in the midst of confrontation. We've been empowered to love one another by walking in spirit and truth. And so Christian... Is there a different doctrine that is leading you astray? Is there a different doctrine that is luring you away from Jesus?
Is it because you simply want faith your way? Is that why you are tempted to walk into vain discussion and speculation? Because you want it your way? Is there a brother or sister that you need to lovingly confront to direct them back to Jesus? But you don't want to, so you want to hide. You don't want to because you want to remain complacent. You want to because you're really just trying to be prideful. Neither of those is loving. So let me, let me invite you, church, to, to repent. And as you do, know that you come forward already. Right now, that's present tense. You already come forward forgiven. That you are covered by grace. And the point of repentance is to turn away from that sin, to turn to Jesus, and to walk in that grace. And if you're not a Christian, I do not take delight in making you feel uncomfortable. I love that you are here. It is, it is an honor. And I love you enough to tell you the truth about what God has revealed about himself and mankind. The Bible teaches that apart from Jesus, your heart is spiritually dead. And it is only through grace, by faith in Jesus, that your heart can be awakened to spiritual life. So let me invite you too to turn from your sin to turn from your idols, and to trust in the Lord Jesus. Church, we guard the gospel by keeping Jesus central to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, today's, uh, today's text was challenging because we are confronted by your word. Confrontation makes us uncomfortable simply because we don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like being humbled. But my hope is that we would remember that we are not being confronted apart from love and grace, but in love and grace. As a result, may we confess that we have, a, we have a propensity to wander from the truth, but by your love and grace, we are called back to you, whether it is directly from your word or your work in and through a brother or sister. Lord, may our hearts be receptive and gracious to godly and loving confrontation. Lord, we confess our our anger, we confess our arrogance, we confess our, our apathy. Lord, would you help us? Help us because we are often lukewarm. We cower and lack belief. We are often complacent and therefore consume rather than contribute. Our sin makes us forget you. Holy Spirit, grant us the grace to abide in Jesus today. Father, you are good because you are gracious. And you are gracious because you are good. May we draw near to you today. And as we enter into a new week, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen.